Well, hello and good morning, friends. Oh, and thank you to Sophie Young. That, that, the, the, the biker right there was a girl in our youth group. She's a junior. She's awesome. So thanks for Sophie Young uh, for her awesome riding in that video. I love that intro, right? Uh, that's up at Tannery Knob. Some of you have ridden up there. I love it. I, and my favorite thing about it is it opens. She's just gliding down this course, catching air on every hill. It's beautiful. But then if you've ridden at Tannery Knob, you know what happens right? You coast down and down and down and then you get to the bottom. And there is no parking lot at the bottom where somebody can pick you up and drive you to the top. No, all there is is a trail that goes back up to the top. And at which point, uh, what I do is I get off my bike and push it back up the mountain. But that's not what Sophie does. Uh, What Sophie does is she hits the hill and she shifts gears and she starts to climb. And that's what this series is about. This series is about learning some of the hills, some of the climbs, some of the rough terrain that we encounter in our relationships and getting some wisdom from God about how we can shift gears and just climb right through. We don't have to crash. We don't have to get off our bike and give up. We can shift gears and keep going. And that's what this series is about. Before we jump into that, though, a couple things. Uh, First of all, shout out to all my people down in the CLC right now. There you are. That's the camera that I'm looking at right there. Hello to CLC people. We are glad you're here. Now you're that camera. Hello to CLC people. We're glad you're here. Uh, Thank you. We have enough room today uh, because there are like 50 people downstairs in the CLC. As we fill up for the fall, we will eventually need another 50 to join them so that we can keep welcoming people into this service. So thank you to those who are down there. Uh, I heard a lot of you parked at extremities today. Thank you for parking at the extremities so that we had enough room for people to arrive. I checked the parking lot right before we came in and there were enough parking spots close by the doors for guests to park in. So thank you for that. Also, one thing I want to let you know about, you might want to get out your cell phone for this. It'll help you for this. Coming up September 23rd is a thing called Love JC. We talked uh, last week about how we want to live the DNA. We don't want to just talk about serving people. We want to actually serve people. Love JC is one of our most high-impact service events of the year. It's just one Saturday morning. The goal is to have hundreds of us for three hours go and do service projects in our city to accomplish good in our city, things that need to get done and can't get done any other way, but also so to do it in a high-impact way so that people notice that the church is in action and God gets the glory. So snap that QR thingy on your phone. It'll be up at the end of service too. Be there September 23rd. Let's all serve together. It's a great high impact way to do some good and uh, bring some glory to God. But right now, let's jump into relationships. Four shifts that you need to make, that I need to make, that God's word calls us to, that will bless every relationship you have. Because human relationships are not smooth coasting down the Tweetsie Trail where we just roll along. You know it, right? Human relationships are off-road chaos with climbs and valleys and steep and difficult terrain. And if we don't learn how to make the shifts we need to, when the going gets rough, we'll just crash. I got my first mountain bike 
Uh, I think I was 14 years old. And up to that point, all my bikes had been, you know, just coaster bikes, no gears, you know, the kind of thing you have when you were a kid. But not this one. It wasn't a three-speed like we used to have back in the day. Some of you remember three speeds. It wasn't a 10-speed. It had 24 speeds. It was amazing. I got it in the middle of my birthday party, and I left the party to go jump on my brand new giant red bike. It was a little too big for me. You know, this is back, you know, like you'll grow into it, right? You know, it's just a little too big for me, but it was gorgeous in my eyes. I jumped on my bike. I rode it up and down the driveway a couple times, and then I was gone. I left the party out to the back roads of Carter County where I grew up. I loved, it was just amazing. Uh, the, the, the road right in front of our driveway had a little bit of flat section, but like every back road of Carter County, pretty soon it got steep, right? And I came to a hill, a hill that I had biked hundreds of times before, but every time prior to this, I had to push up and coast down because I, I couldn't pedal up the hill, but not this time. Now I had gears. I was pedaling at the hill. Of course, my first take at it, I shifted the wrong way, shifted up instead of down, and immediately wrecked. But the second try, I knew what direction to push those levers. And for the first time ever, a hill that I thought was impossible to ride up suddenly wasn't even that hard. That's how much a difference it made when I shifted in the right direction. And that's what I want for us to experience out of this series. I want us to learn some ways that we can shift our strategy in our relationships. When the going gets tough, when we hit the climb, when we hit the hill that we knew was coming, we hit it all the time, and usually it just makes us wreck. But not this time. This time we're going to learn how to shift in a godly direction that allow us just to pedal right through. The first hill that we're going to talk about in this series is what I would call the hill of disagreement. How do we need to shift when disagreement enters our most important relationships so that we can just pedal on through? Uh, to help you think about what I mean by disagreement entering our most important relationships, I want to tell you a little story uh, from the early days of my marriage. Uh, Betsy and I, we'd probably been married six weeks at this point. This was one of our first big fights. I've never forgotten this fight. It was the hot Philadelphia summer of 1995. Uh, that summer broke records for how many consecutive days they had in a row over 96 degrees high and over 90 degrees in the low. It was like 40 days in a row. It was a ridiculously hot summer. We were in a tiny one-bedroom apartment on the second floor above a music store, and we had no air conditioning, and it was not an ideal location for our first few months of marriage. And one day, after we'd gotten home from our summer jobs, we were both in college still at the time, uh, Betsy shared some detail about some home project that she wanted to work on. And to my ears, not having been married very long, the level of detail at which she shared about this project was way more than I was prepared for. She, she shared with me the scope of the problem and why it was a problem and the various settings under which it was a problem. She shared with me several solutions that she'd considered and she proposed elaborate solutions only to tell me why that solution wasn't going to work. And finally, at the end of this conversation, she shared the solution she thought would work and she said, so I think that's what I'm going to do on Saturday. 
And I, with only the wisdom you have when you've been married six weeks, I responded when I thought was a radically gracious response. I said, great, I don't care. I thought this was a particularly kind thing to say. She did not. And so we did what we thought we must do in the face of this disagreement. We had ourselves a fight. Fueled by a broke budget and a broken air conditioner and sleepless nights and two fools in love, boy, did we ever have a fight. We, of course, did not have a fight about whatever was the project she was working on because I truly didn't care. Why would we fight about that? What we fought about was the fact that I didn't care. We fought about my response, right? And the issue at stake in the fight was, had I, as I argued, said something nice, demonstrating how much I respected her judgment in the matter, why would I give an opinion? Or had I, as she argued, said something cruel, demonstrating that the concerns of her life didn't matter to me and I didn't want to be involved in them. And she could not apologize and forgive me until I acknowledged the cruelty of my words and I wasn't about to apologize and forgive her until she acknowledged what a kind thing I'd said. And so we disagreed. And because we disagreed, we fought felt like for the rest of the summer, we fought over whether or not I had said something nice or something cruel. What you know is that is the most natural of relationship patterns, isn't it, right? Into your relationship, some disagreement emerges. You think to yourself, I thought I knew that person. How could they think such a ridiculous thing? How could they say such a foolish thing? How could they have such a wrong-headed opinion? Into your relationship, a disagreement emerges, and the obvious response to that disagreement is to fight. It can happen in the church. It can happen with your friendships. It happens in your marriages. And we must fight, of course, right? I mean, if we don't fight, how are we going to decide who's right and who's wrong? If we don't fight, how will we defend our honor and humiliate our opponents? If we don't fight, how will we prove our wisdom or establish our position or reinforce our power? When you're in a relationship where disagreement arises, sometimes it feels like you have to fight about it, right? Some of you are experiencing this right now. You have a relationship right now that is being damaged or maybe has been ruined by a disagreement that emerged like a wedge in the middle of your relationship. And so when the disagreement emerged, you took your sides and began to fight. Some families have have, have had this happen, right? Where a disagreement emerges and you begin to fight about it. And 20 years later, that fight is the defining reality of your family. And you're still having the same fight. Some of you are doing this right now. You're in this right now. 
Some of you would say, it's not that we're in it, it's just that it happens all the time, right? Some of you experience this every day in your marriages, right? Little disagreements turn into big fights. You've noticed that, right? That the scale of the fight seems to have no relationship to the scale of the disagreement. Little disagreements turn into big fights. And soon everybody is an AP history student, right? Remembering everything that anybody has ever done wrong. You remember where, you remember when, you know what you were wearing. And, and because that fight has become so important, because it stands between you and the other person, suddenly you would do anything to win that fight. You know what I'm talking about, right? Oh, you might not be this logical about it, but you do it. You think, you know, if I got angry, I'd win the fight. So you start to yell. If I got hyper-logical and made them feel foolish and humiliated them, I'd win the fight. So you try that. Or if I got hyper-emotional and began to scream or weep, that would work. That would win the fight. So you'll try that. If I went after an old wound, if I went after a place of vulnerability, a place that they haven't quite healed yet, I can dig in there, they'll get distracted. I could win the fight that way. Pretty soon, you're fighting about the fight, right? You're not fighting about the disagreement, you're fighting about the way you fought about the disagreement. And then you're fighting about the fight that you had about the fight, because what else is there to do? You disagree, which means you got to fight it out. The Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the church in Rome because he was worried that was going to happen to them. If you want to go ahead and open your Bibles, we're going to look a little bit at Romans 14 and 15. See, this church had a disagreement, and it was a big disagreement. Sometimes when we read this text, we, we miss the scale, the magnitude of this disagreement. They disagreed about how to interpret and apply the Ten Commandments. Maybe you've heard of the Ten Commandments. This was the pinnacle of the Jewish moral code. It includes things like don't steal, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't lie. Well, they had an argument about how to interpret and apply the Ten Commandments. The two they were arguing about were the, the laws about idol worship and the law about Sabbath. Some of them thought that if they bought meat that had been used as part of a pagan sacrificial ceremony, then they were participating in idol worship. And some of them thought, nah, pretty sure it's just meat. Some of them thought that they still needed to keep the Sabbath according to the Jewish moral code. And some of them thought, nah, I don't know. I think Jesus sort of took care of all that. They disagreed, you see, about how to interpret and apply the Ten Commandments. It was a big disagreement. And we know, right, that when you have a disagreement, especially a disagreement that big, the most natural way to respond to the disagreement is to start a fight. And Paul was worried that they might do that. And so he wrote to them to propose a different strategy for how to deal with their disagreement. 
to propose a, a shift, if you will. We'll look at a little bit of his advice. Romans 14, verse 2. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. This is the idol controversy. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted them. Paul's first rule for disagreement is to say you may not treat with contempt the person who disagrees with you. He goes on, for who are you to judge somebody else's servant? It's to their own master they stand or fall. He's like, yeah, somebody's wrong, but you don't judge them for being wrong. They'll be judged by their master, which could make you nervous. You're like, now suddenly you're like, oh my goodness, I better get everything right or Jesus is going to judge me. I got to figure it out. I got to solve them. I can't have any questions left. If I get this wrong, I'll fail the Bible quiz and, and Jesus will be mad. It's to their own master they stand or fall. But look what he says. And they will stand. It's actually a passive, it's an awkward construction in English. It actually says something like, they will be stood up. Because it's not their own strength by which they stand. How, why do we know they'll stand? Because the Lord is able to make them stand. That's where Paul starts. Paul says, in your disagreement, you can't go judging each other. You can't, get contempt. you can't get contempt for one another because your unity is anchored in the work of Jesus. And the work of Jesus is not threatened by your confusion and your disagreement. He goes on, skipping a few verses, verse 6. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. This is the Sabbath thing they disagreed about. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God, and whoever abstains does so to the Lord and give thanks to God. For none of us live for ourselves alone. None of us die for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. How do you navigate disagreement? He says, focus on your identity in Christ, your unity in Christ. He gives some specific advice for verse 13. Therefore, stop passing judgment on one another. Verse 19, make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. He's basically, in these two chapters, he's walking through the same advice that he gave to Timothy in a letter to Timothy where he says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but kind to everly one, to able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. This is the shift. Paul says when you disagree, conflict actually isn't necessary. You could just shift. You could say, I'm not going to pick a fight with anybody. You could just say, I'm not going to fight with anybody. But I'm going to be kind to everyone. Patient. Correcting with gentleness. Most importantly, throughout Romans 14 and 15, the point Paul makes to them is this. Do not focus on winning the argument. Focus on maintaining the relationship. Which is fascinating to me because Paul actually has an opinion about the argument. That's the thing that's so important. These issues they disagreed on, not only were they important issues, Paul actually knows who he thinks is right and who he thinks is wrong. 
He didn't need two chapters on how to love each other even when you disagree. He could have just written two verses. By the way, eat all the meat you want. Who cares about the idols? And don't be so legalistic about the Sabbath. That's what he thinks. We know this because he gives this specific instruction in Colossians, in Corinthians, in tons of other letters. He's very clear. We know which side of the disagreement Paul's on. But he does not settle the argument. And he teaches them that the goal, the primary goal when you are in a relationship where disagreement arises, the primary goal is not to win the argument, but to heal the relationship. Some of you need to hear me say that like three more times. Because you're in a situation right now where you are in a disagreement and you have been tricked into thinking that the main thing you need to do is win the disagreement. Prove them wrong at whatever cost, whatever it takes to show how right you are and how wrong they are. And you probably are right. Only smart people go to this church, so I bet you're totally right. You're brilliant. You probably are right. But Paul says, prioritize the relationship over the argument. Prioritize the relationship over the argument. He concludes the section in this way. Romans 15, verse 5. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you. His basic argument is this. It is by the power of Christ that you have been declared one family, one kingdom, one people, one community. And if your unity has been declared by the power of Christ, you do not have the authority to break it. It's like two kids in the back seat of the car on a road trip and they start fighting and squabbling over something that they disagree about and one kid says to the other, that's it. If you don't agree with me, I'm kicking you out of the family. And mom turns around and says, um, I don't know what you're arguing about, but you lack the authority to kick anybody out of the family. That's what Paul said. And maybe, maybe this is a question you need to ponder, okay? Just, just ponder this with me for a second. Maybe you know the relationship that you have that is right now being marred by disagreement. Maybe it's between a parent and a child or with an old friend or it's just driven a wedge right through your entire family and cousins and aunts and uncles are all lining up on two sides of a disagreement. Maybe it's your marriage. And I just wanted you to think about this question. When you encounter disagreement, which do you care about more? Winning the argument or healing the relationship? I don't mean which do you care about theoretically. I don't mean which do you care about when you're sitting here on Sunday morning in a comfortable chair. I mean in the moment of disagreement, what do you put as your priority? In the moment when the disagreement happens and conflict feels like the obvious path, what do you prioritize in that moment? Winning the argument or healing the relationship? 
Because if we recognize that the relationship matters more than the argument, we will need to shift. We will need a new strategy when we encounter disagreement. Now, we won't shift to silence, saying we're never going to talk about our disagreements, we're never going to acknowledge our disagreements. That doesn't help anybody. It just lets it fester until it builds up and explodes. But we are going to change how we talk about disagreements. If you were looking for a Bible verse that might describe this shift, you could go to James 1. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. That would be a shift for a lot of us, wouldn't it? When we encounter disagreement, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. The description of this shift that has helped me the most at a practical level is this one. When you disagree, shift from a posture of conflict to a posture of curious conversation. At the moment of disagreement, when the disagreement first arises in your family, your friend group, with your spouse, have the first thing you do be to get curious. Just a little interested. That would help you be quick to listen, right? Because curious people listen more than they talk. It'd help you be slow to get angry, wouldn't it? Because when you're curious, you don't get mad, you get fascinated, right? I, I got a phone call some years ago. When I'm, I just love this phone call. It makes me happy to remember it. Because when we do this in the church, it's such a beautiful thing. Guy calls me up. He says, Ethan, I heard that you think the Bible teaches blah, 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 blah. It's a whole bunch of stuff. I was suddenly filled with fear. I'd had this fight before and I didn't want to have it then. But I told him the truth. I was like, yeah, that's, that's right. I do think the Bible teaches that. He says, well, I've been taught my whole life that that is completely wrong. And if somebody thinks that about the Bible, you, you shouldn't listen to them. I was like, yeah, I, I know people who disagree with me. I said, I also know plenty of people who see it the way I see it, but, but I know, yeah. The conversation sort of stalled. It got a little awkward. I didn't know what his next move was going to be. He didn't know what my next move was going to be. After a little bit of silence, he said, well, I think we're just going to have to go to lunch. Because I would be fascinated to learn how you could come to that conclusion. It was one of my favorite lunches ever. We disagreed from the moment the menus arrived till the bill arrived at the table. Uh, he had brought commentaries with him. I was Googling stuff on my phone. I bet we found three things to agree on the whole time we were together. And at the end, he just said, well, I'll see you Sunday. And he stayed curious, and I stayed curious. We learned a little bit, you know. And, and neither one of us ever picked a fight the whole time. It was like it wasn't even necessary to fight. And it, and it isn't. That's, that's what I wanted you to learn. It isn't necessary to fight. You could just stay curious the whole time. And learn from each other and love each other. 
One of my favorite things about this church is that I have tons of stories like that. Now, of course, I could tell a few that went the other way, right? Where just as soon as a disagreement emerges in some complex matter where not everything's clear, somebody entered immediately into the arena of conflict, right? They started fighting before they'd even prayed about it. They started tearing somebody down before they even understood the point they were trying to make. They dismissed them before they served them. They cut them off before. Yeah, of course I could tell stories like that. Like we didn't even know what Paul wrote when he said, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling. Be humble and gentle. Be patient. Bear with one another in love. Make every effort to keep unity in the bond of peace. Yeah, I could tell stories like that. But I do. I want you to know, by God's grace, I actually have a lot more of where people have made the shift from conflict to curiosity. And this shift from conflict to curiosity, it's for way more than just your church relationships. Every relationship you have that matters to you where disagreement arises, you will be blessed if you can follow God's instruction to shift from a posture of conflict to a posture of curious conversation. This shift will bring healing to your most vital of friendships. This shift could bring rescue to a division that has wedged its way through your family for perhaps decades. And I will just say, man, if you are married, this shift will transform your marriage. I want to tell you something that's true that you may not believe. If you can learn to do this shift, your next big disagreement in your marriage could drive you closer together rather than farther apart. If you can learn to make this shift, your next disagreement in marriage could actually make your marriage stronger instead of weaker. I want to take a second and just let you think about what this looks like when we accomplish this shift in marriage. Now, for some of you, it's going to be hard to imagine, but but for those of you, imagine you're married and you disagree with your spouse about something. I know for most of you that never happens, so you'll have to really use your imaginations. But, But imagine that you and your spouse disagree. And suddenly, you're here, and they're there, and you've got yourselves an argument. You know, it, it could be something little, could be something big. Anybody who's been married for any length of time can tell you that the, the size of the disagreement has very little relationship to the scale of the fight about it. There's basically no relationship. We can have a fight that lasts for weeks over the tiniest little silliness, and you probably can too. But what happens is the disagreement gets between you, and suddenly you know you're in for rocky terrain. Nobody's coasting through this little season of marriage here, right? This is not just pedaling along, whistling. Suddenly we've got to do some serious riding. Because as long as that disagreement is between us, a curious thing happens. When the disagreement is between us, I see the disagreement more clearly than I see my spouse. 
My attention is on the argument more than on my beloved. And as long as I focus my attention on the argument, well, then I'm going to win the argument. (laughs) And every tool at my disposal is fair game. But what if, when disagreement leads to conflict, somebody made a shift? And they just, just for two minutes, mustered up a little curiosity. And, and they picked up their chair. And they said, hey, can I, can I sit next to you for a second? I just want to see what this argument looks like from your side of the table. I want to see what you're seeing because I can tell you're not seeing what I'm seeing. Can I sit next to you for just a second because I want to make sure you know that nothing about this disagreement is more important to me than our relationship. I would lose this fight a hundred times if it blessed our relationship, if it strengthened our marriage. Maybe for you this is about a friendship or talking to your folks or whatever. Over here on this side, suddenly you ask different questions, don't you? You ask, tell me what you're hearing when I said that thing, because I think you might have heard something different than what I meant. Tell me why this matters to you. Tell me what goals and dreams and values you're trying to accomplish by by going about it that way. I really believe if you could muster two minutes of curiosity to get on the same side of the table and suddenly the disagreement, isn't this amazing? Suddenly the disagreement is not driving you apart, but driving you together. Because man, we're going to link arms and we're going to solve this. And if you could muster two minutes of curiosity then I bet you could do it for four. If you could stay curious for four minutes, I I bet you could do it for eight. And, And maybe you could stay curious for the entire duration that you spend talking about that disagreement. I got to see this in action not long ago. Uh, it turns out, uh, my wife and I still disagree every once in a while. Uh, it happens, you know. Um, turns out. We, uh, we almost had a pretty good-sized fight several months ago. Uh, it, it, it started, or it almost started, because Betsy said just the most horrible and cruel thing to me. Now, spoiler alert, she didn't actually say anything horrible and cruel to me, but I thought she did, and you'll understand when I tell you what she said. I'd come home from work, and um, I was frustrated. I'd spent my whole day trying to solve a problem at which I had been entirely unsuccessful. And I lamented to her about the problem and the things I'd tried and why it didn't work, and I complained that I was going to have to wake up the next day and try and solve the same problem that I'd already spent a whole day failing to solve. And that's when she said just the most... I mean, when I tell you what she said, oh, don't think less of her, please. She said... Do you need any help? Can you believe it? 
I'm just glad the kids didn't hear her. It, I just, oh my goodness. And I was not curious about what she meant. I knew what she meant. What she meant was I was an incompetent failure of a man, unable to solve the problems I faced in my professional and personal life. And in her disappointment, she was throwing me a lifeline. That's what she meant, obviously. And because she said such a horrible thing, I started to fight. Except I was thwarted in my efforts to fight with her. Because just the second I started to fight, she made a shift. And she just whooped over to my side. She's like, tell me what awful thing I just said. Because I didn't mean to say nothing awful, but I can tell I said something awful. And so I explained to her how deeply she just insulted me. And she said, oh, well, in that case, I should have said something different because that's not what I meant. I just wanted you to know you weren't in this alone. And whatever happened, I was by your side. I was still a little bit ready to fight. So I was like, well, why didn't you say that? And she just stayed curious. She just stayed curious. She said, I can see how you wish I'd thought of that. I, I probably wish I did too, but I didn't, didn't see how you'd see it. Every time I pivoted to try and argue, she just pivot again and stay curious. Pretty soon I got curious. Well, what do you think the words, do you, can I help you mean? I mean, aren't they an obvious insult to you as well? She said, well, no, actually I use those words all the time when I'm not trying to insult somebody. I'm like, really? Fascinating. <laughs> Pretty soon we were laughing a little bit about how the fact that what I thought was an attack was her an expression of solidarity. What shifted? Well, Betsy did. She was quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. And believe me, I gave her plenty of opportunities to become angry. And she just didn't take any of them. She shifted from conflict to curious conversation. We've been trying to make that shift more often in the last 20-some-odd years. Sometimes she does it. Sometimes I do it. Some days we even both do it. And some days neither of us do it. But we are learning. Our marriage is stronger every day because of it. I'm not saying I like to disagree with my wife, but I'm not terrified of it anymore. Because I know that if we can pull this off the way God's word teaches us, our marriage will emerge stronger from our disagreements because we become curious about each other. We learn about each other. We demonstrate to each other. I mean, and maybe some of you, maybe this is the thing. You need to go home today and communicate this. Maybe you haven't made this clear that nothing about the disagreement you're having right now with your spouse, with your family, with your friends, nothing about that disagreement matters more to you than your relationship with them. You'd lose the fight a thousand times if it would bless that relationship. Now, do you still have to talk about it and think about it? Of course you do. You can't ignore your disagreements. But it is not a requirement that disagreement turn into conflict. Quick to listen. Slow to speak. Slow to become angry. What was it Paul said? Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you. Jesus did not accept you because you agreed on all the right things. 
Paul says you're supposed to accept other people the same way. Paul says be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Put up with other people in love. Make every effort, not to win the fight. That's what I, man, I'm good at that. Don't make every effort to win the fight. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Here's my challenge to you real practically. You know where you need to apply this. You know where the, the, the cycle of disagreement leading to conflict, you know what relationship it's tearing down in your life, okay? Wherever that is, here's my challenge to you. Be curious for two minutes. Just spend two minutes on their side of the table trying to understand them and communicate that they matter more to you than the argument. And if you can be curious for two, then be curious for four. And if you can be curious for four, be curious for eight. Quick to listen. Slow to speak. Slow to become angry. Do something that demonstrates that you care more about them than you do the argument. Accept one another then, just as Christ Jesus has accepted you. Let me pray for you. God, lead us in this way. When the, when the challenge, the rough terrain of disagreement comes into our relationships, as we know it will, teach us to shift away from conflict, away from tearing down, away from the argument, and toward love and acceptance and mercy, for this is your call on our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.